Hi, and welcome to Data Futurology, the podcast where we speak with industry leaders in the data space to get their secrets of success to help you take your career to the next level. My name is Felipe Flores. I am your host. Thank you so much for being here. I hope that you're having a wonderful week. Today, we are speaking with Tomer Shiran. He is the co-founder and CEO of Dreamio. For the people that haven't heard of Dreamio, it is a cloud-based solution that essentially sits on your data lake on Azure or Amazon Web Services. And Dreamio allows you to very efficiently query and access the data sitting on the data lake. So then you can bypass creating a data warehouse with structured data. So it gives you a lot of speed and access benefits there. To create the product, he's had to be very visionary, very entrepreneurial, and also being able to work very closely with customers, identifying and solving their challenges, which a lot of us face on a day-to-day basis. He's a super interesting guy. The journey of building the company, I know is going to resonate with a lot of the listeners that are thinking about becoming an entrepreneur or are an entrepreneur in this space. And also from a data science and data engineering perspective, he covers a lot of ground in terms of the challenges that they've had to solve for customers and things that they face on a day-to-day basis. I hope you enjoy it. It's a great episode. Please let me know what you think. If you like it, please, please, please share it with other people. Thank you so much. Here's the interview with Tomer. Hi, this is Felipe. Today I'm speaking with Tomer. Tomer, thank you so much for making the time. It is so great to get to speak to you. How are you doing today? I'm doing well, thank you. Thanks for having me on the podcast. Too kind. To kick off the interview, I wanted to ask you about how did you get started in the data space? What was it that pulled you in in the first place? Yeah, you know, it's been a while now. I actually started a PhD at Carnegie Mellon and focused a lot on data processing and analytics and really developing extremely high performance capabilities around that. One thing led to another. I moved to the Bay Area here and joined a company that at the time was only four people called MapR. It was one of the Hadoop vendors that you may be familiar with. And that was back in 2009. I spent about six years there and that was a great ride, a lot of growth. For sure, especially if you were the fourth person, like employee number four. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. I uh, oh. and, and I ran uh, product management for the company. And how was that ride over that time? It was great. You know, back if you think back to 2009, when we were just getting started, big data didn't really, that wasn't really a thing. You had Google kind of setting some best practices, writing some white papers on what they were doing with the Google file system and MapReduce, that, that's now history. But, uh, but at the time, those were <laughs> really hot things. And the opportunity was really to bring some of those uh, best practices and capabilities to other companies besides Google. And so some of those early meetings, I still remember meeting the folks at LinkedIn who had uh, maybe 20 servers running a Hadoop cluster in the basement of their main building at the time. And, you know, enterprises weren't using it yet, but it seemed like we could make a big impact by having this centralized, very scalable place where companies could dump their data and do a lot of things with it. So that was kind of the hypothesis. And those first uh, years were, were very exciting. I'm sure very exciting. And during, I guess, with a bit of overlap with your role there, but you started a little bit before you started a, a business as well, right? In 2005, what was that focused on? And how was running the experience of having your own business help you or compare to working with MapR? Oh, I had started a, just a small kind of side business. This is uh, back at the time I was uh, working at Microsoft and uh, being the entrepreneur that I am, it was time to go get passport photos to renew my passport. And uh, 
I was like, why is this so complex? Why do I have to go to the mall? I was living in, in Israel at the time. And so I ended up building an application software at the time. .NET was actually new. Wow. So a, long, a long time ago. And I was like, yeah, I could, I could do this. And then you know, a friend and I, we said, well, why don't we build a website to do that? And so really fun experience. It was never a full-time job, but it was a great business doing six figures a year and uh, hundreds of thousands of uh, customers every year uh, were using this, the service and, and paying for it. We were ranked uh, number one on Google for kind of key terms like passport photos. And that was a good experience in terms of kind of building a consumer business and driving kind of SEO and all those things that increasingly become more, more and more important also in the yeah. kind of B2B type businesses as well, because a lot of the adoption now is kind of bottoms up adoption driven by the people who are using products as opposed to CIO who's sitting there making a decision top down. 100%. And when you first started the e-passport photo, what did you think it was going to be or it could be? I had no idea at the time. It was really just doing it for fun, right? It was like, hey, let me uh, spend a few days building this app in .NET, let people... The hypothesis was, why does it like 10 cents? Or at the time I was in Israel, so it was one shekel. Why is it one shekel to print a uh, 10 by 15 centimeter or a 4 by 6 inch uh, photo, yet to get a passport photo that I'm paying whatever, $10, $20 and having to go to the store. So I was like, that doesn't make any sense. The printing is the same quality. It's just a matter of the picture. So let's let people do it by themselves. And initially, I was just using it for my, myself. And then uh, very quickly, I think a lot of people uh, started using it. So that was, uh, that was actually fun. That's awesome. And did you have any other entrepreneurial ventures before that, even if they might, might have been small or? No, not really. Not really. I always enjoyed, uh, ever since kind of high school, enjoyed writing code and getting my hands dirty. I actually wrote a book on JavaScript when mm. back in 1997, when it had first come out. There were no books on the topic yet. And I was naive enough being 18 years old, uh, I submit a few proposals to some book publishers. I found an article online that explained how you can get a book published and ended up reaching out to O'Reilly and a bunch of others. And you know, one of them responded, sure, why don't you uh, write the book? And so that's what I did for the summer. Actually, before entering into military service, I spent a couple months writing a 800-page book. So that was, uh, that was kind of an interesting experience too. Oh, man, that would have been insane. What kept you going through the time to get to the 800 pages? <laughs> I don't, I don't know. I, I would never do that again. <laughs> <laughs> Good rap. And then obviously in Israel, it's um, compulsory to do military service for a year, I think it is, for men or then two years for women or the other way around? Actually, actually three years for men. At the time, I think it may be a little bit shorter now, but uh, at the time yeah. it was three years. So yeah, not a whole lot of fun, but uh, you have to do. And uh, I uh, did my three years and then uh, went well, to undergrad. Surprisingly, I don't know, surprisingly, but it, you're the third guest that I've had on the show that did military service in Israel. And there was there was another guy that grew up in Israel, but he got out of military service by being overseas. But mm -hmm. other three guests have done military service. So that's interesting. And obviously, we're like, I don't know, only 70 episodes in or 75 episodes in. Uh, so it's interesting that already three have <laughs> come from your land and gone through <laughs> at least that military service experience. Really, really interesting, man. So tell me about some of the, the main takeaways that you had from your time at MAPAR and how that shaped your thinking for what was to come. Yeah, I talked a little bit about what was interesting and what was so promising about what we were doing at MAPAR. But, uh, you know, when I looked at it several years later, what was becoming increasingly clear is that while it was certainly possible for companies to centralize all their data, to build these Hadoop clusters and do all that work, the platform was just uh, too complex. Getting that thing deployed, all the different yeah. integrations between open source projects, 
we would have to sell a lot of professional services just for companies to be able to get their data into the platform. And then on top of that, it ended up being something that really only the developers and the really skilled kind of engineers were able to take advantage of that platform. And I think for many companies, obviously, there was an expectation that any business analyst, for example, and data scientists could take advantage of that environment. So that led me to start Dremio. And I started Dremio with a colleague of mine, actually, who um, is well known in the uh, in the open source community. He's now the creator of a project called Apache Arrow, which has like 4 million downloads a month now. But uh, really, the goal was to take a step back and say, you know what, the goal of being able to analyze the data and large volumes of data extremely fast, and regardless of where the data is stored, that goal still exists. And in many ways, it's the holy grail of analytics, but a different approach would be needed to, to solve that. And at the same time, you had this growth of uh, the public cloud. And so companies were starting to kind of migrate or, or at least evaluate at the time, moving a lot of their infrastructure to AWS and, and to Azure. And so we were able to capitalize on that trend and that kind of market momentum. And we started Dremio. This was in 2015, so four years ago, exactly. And spent the first two years really in stealth, building the team, building the technology, Maybe atypical for a startup, the amount of IP we had to develop in order to do this. It's kind of a distributed database plus many other things. So you had to build a really experienced team with a lot of kind of database engineers, kernel engineers, optimizer engineers. And we did that and, you know, ended up building building a a product that, uh, you know, fast forward a few years later is now used by many of the largest uh, Fortune 500 companies. That's right. That's amazing. How was that time? Actually, before I ask you about the, the stealth period, I want to ask you about the origins of it. How was the process of, of deciding to start the company and then the first maybe three to six months in it? It's something that could be intimidating because you don't know the first thing we had to do, right, in order to build something like this was to raise money, right? There's no way you can build something like this without a significantly large team. And so that's obviously kind of uh, milestone number one is is getting that. And it ended up being very, uh, very quick for us. But before you do it, it's an unknown, right? And so... That was kind of the first thing. So once we left, we put together the uh, hypothesis. We put together a kind of a pitch deck. We even prototyped a little bit of things and then talked to a number of investors that quickly turned into our Series A within within a week or two. And we uh, we raised our first round. That was from Lightspeed and Redpoint, so two of the top uh, VCs in the Valley. And they both had great experience with data companies. So same investors as Looker, for example. Um, one of our board members was, at the time, the Series A investor of Looker as well. And that was um, very attractive. Barry Eggers was on, from Lightspeed was one of the founders of Lightspeed. He was on the board at MapR, so I'd known him from that experience. And so, yeah, we got off the ground with a great set of investors and the capital to make this come true. That's fantastic. And how was the time that you spent in stealth? How did you gauge how much product development should be done at that stage? Obviously, before launching, at what stage did you start getting customers in? How was that process? I'm a big believer in engaging prospects from day one because the best thing you can do is listen to the the market and listen to the customers. And that doesn't mean you have to do everything they want you to do at that stage, but you definitely want to understand what their pain is and what value you can bring to the table. So you kind of start with your hypothesis, but you you know until you're getting that real feedback from enterprises and we uh, you know some of our early companies that we worked with and and are now customers are uh, you know the likes of uh, say TransUnion. Uh, was one of our early customers and actually worked with us as we were developing this. So they had large volumes of data, uh-huh. a lot of users that wanted to analyze it, and uh, partnering with them on on that was extremely valuable. The period in stealth is it gets easier with time for sure because when you're getting started, it was me and my co-founder. We were two people, and at that point, you're you've got to convince 
a bunch of people to join this company that hardly exists, right? Maybe it's, yeah, it is registered in Delaware and you know, it is a legal entity, but there, there wasn't even an office to start with. There's no HR, there's nothing, right? It was a good, let's go to the Apple store and get a laptop for you. So those first few employees are taking a leap of faith. But uh, I think once you get that going and you kind of get past the first maybe 10 employees, it becomes easier. It starts to feel like a real company that's, that's onto something. And when you started hiring, where did you start? What type of roles were you starting with? Uh, primarily engineers. For what we were doing, we mostly needed uh, engineers. That was kind of the majority of it. There was a little bit on the UX side as well. So we uh, ended up working with the, the UX designers, the UX and visual designers that designed Splunk. And they had a lot of kind of expertise in, in this place, in data, had built a great product there. And we thought they would be the right, uh, right folks to build, uh, to design Dremio. Um, they had also in between done the UX for Looker as well. So, so that was a good fit and combined that with a really good uh, engineering team. At the time, we were primarily hiring, our office was in Mountain View. So we, uh, we hired in people in, in the area. Fantastic. And between then and now, what do you think have been some of the pivotal moments for the company? Moments that led to a, a transition or, or a different trajectory afterwards? What have been the main ones? You know, I would say certainly there's the uh, launching the product, right? And that's kind of launching the beta and then launching the GA product, right? Launching the beta where customers are actually running this and providing feedback and using it and telling you how, how much they like it or what issues they're running into. So that was kind of the beta period. And then having a GA product and recruiting your first uh, kind of your early sales team. I think that was another kind of key moment is until you see people or companies spend money on something, you don't really know that it's valuable to them, right? You can ask them, is it valuable? And they'll say yes. But at the end of the day, until once they're willing to spend you know hundreds of thousands of dollars a year on this, then you know that you're providing some real value to them. And so that was another, I think, key moment for us. I'd say another one is also once we started to understand the repeatability in terms of what companies were, were really doing with the product and, and we started seeing it again and again and again. And for us, basically, that was the arriving at the point where Dremio had really become the data lake engine. So the engine for data lakes for lots of different companies, some of the largest in the world now. And uh, I think that allows you to focus the energy of the company. You can kind of you know, do similar use cases in different places. You're not building new things for every single deployment, right? It's everybody's starting to do the same thing with a product. That's another kind of, I think, milestone in the evolution of a company. And for us, that was becoming the data lake engine for, for all these companies, especially on AWS and on uh, Azure. Fantastic. And for the people that don't know your company, how do you describe both the product and being this data lake engine? Well, I would say Dremio is the data lake engine. What we enable companies to do is we enable them to run lightning fast queries directly on data lake storage. So things like S3 and ADLS. And that enables them to analyze data without having to load it into a data warehouse and without having to build cubes and BI extracts and aggregation tables and all the gymnastics that people go through in order to make data available for fast queries. And this really gives uh, this plus uh, a self-service semantic layer that we have in the product gives companies the ability to really take advantage of, of data that they have in S3 and ADLS. And I think that's really interesting because in the cloud, that's really where most companies are putting their data. Being able to analyze it there without having to load it into a data warehouse and from there into another set of systems just in order to get performance, that's a huge value uh, proposition. And then on top of that, we also allow companies to join the data that they have in data lake storage with other data sources. We have a variety of connectors for other databases. And in fact, we just launched the Dremio Hub, which is a marketplace for connectivity where users can download community developed connectors and kind of a long tail of those so that they can perform joins across, say, S3 and SQL Server or ADLS and Oracle and things like that. 
hugely beneficial for so many companies that would definitely get them to outcomes and results much faster than doing a build through a data warehouse and preparing the cubes and the marts. And sometimes that can be months or, or years. So huge, huge advantage. Can you tell me about the semantic layer? How is that developed and how does it become self-service? So if you think about what we do from a, a semantic layer standpoint, we provide an interface that looks actually looks, I would say, more like Google Docs or Office mm-hmm. 365 than it does like a traditional OLAP cube builder or an ETL tool. So it's much more approachable. And the goal there is to allow data engineering to create virtual data sets that maybe filter the data or mask it and control what exact data is made accessible to each class of users in the company. But it's also about allowing the consumers of data, so the Tableau user or the Power BI user or the Python data scientist, allowing those users to curate new virtual data sets and to share them with their colleagues and to kind of build on top of each other. So it's kind of one shared place where new virtual data sets can be created without creating lots of copies of data. I think that's the important Mm. thing. In traditional data infrastructure, every time you want to have a different perspective of the data, that means creating another copy. And another copy. And it's not just the cost of storing all that data, it's the lack of flexibility at that point. Because if you have 100 copies of the data at different aggregation levels and you know different uh, data preparation steps that have been taking place, you then have to make all of those fast to query as well. And so you're now having to build you know 100 cubes on each of those. And of course, that's impossible. So it just becomes a huge mess. And if you can have this semantic layer that is a set of virtual data sets, and basically a system like Dremio with its optimizer can automatically optimize the queries and rewrite them to take advantage of various indexes and aggregations that are maintained internally in the system, then you can have a huge uh, usability and also performance advantage. Huge, huge advantage. And it's interesting that for the people that work in data, especially some of the older crowd, maybe like, like me, when we start facing these problems, our solution is naturally to have more copies of the data, but very quickly start spiraling out of control. The interesting thing is that from the business user's perspective, they intuitively see multiple copies of data as a bad thing. At least in my career, whenever I had to describe that something requires a, a different copy and it's going to be sort of somewhere else so we can treat it in a different way, I've noticed business users always have be a bit apprehensive towards that. And it makes sense for them to think like that. And it's great that now Dreamio is able to help that engineers be able to provide the services at the expectation of business in a, mm-hmm. in a much easier way. Yeah, we actually, another interesting use case there is oftentimes companies and especially the kinds of companies we work with, they have very large volumes of data. So, you know, many terabytes. And in order to get performance on that, what they've been doing historically is pre-aggregating that data. So they'll create aggregations of, let's say, all these events by different dimensions and actually different levels of aggregation. So some, the raw data, but then, you know, some basic aggregations, some more aggregated data, et cetera, right? So maybe you have 20 different levels of aggregation and then, or, or even hundreds. And then analysts who are supposed to be using this data, they're kind of expected or forced to have to understand what is the right aggregation table to use in order to query that data and get the performance that they want. And of course, that's not realistic. They, they don't understand the structure of the data. They don't understand which one they should go against. And they always make the wrong choice. And, and this happens with cubes as well. And not only that, but even if you do choose the right one, ultimately, then you start interacting with that data and you're trying to drill down from kind of the aggregate level into another a less aggregated view and ultimately into the raw details. And because those are different data sets, you actually can't drill down into that. And so then you're kind of stuck with not being able to get into the data as much as you want. And so with Dremio, we, we've actually developed this technology we call data reflections, where 
we can maintain all these various aggregations, but the system will automatically, when, when we're running a SQL query, we will automatically rewrite that query plan to utilize the right aggregation to accelerate that query. And from the user's standpoint, they can just interact with the as if they're interacting with the raw data, but they'll get the performance benefits of having data that's pre-aggregated at different levels. Fantastic. And typically, who are the users that would be doing that, that interaction? Yeah, we see two classes of users that are kind of, that we call them the data consumer. And then that's on one side. And then on the other side, we see the data engineers and the data architects. So those are the two classes, the two broader groups of users that use Dremio are the, yeah, the data engineers, architects, and the data consumers. And within the world of data consumers, there's actually two categories. One is more the business analyst. And that's a term we use to describe somebody who uses Tableau or Power BI or Looker or one of those types of tools. And then there's the data scientist who's using something like Jupyter Notebooks, or maybe they're using uh, just Python, R, MATLAB, etc. And, and we've done a lot to make Gemio very appealing to both classes of users in terms of, on one hand, how well we integrate with their existing BI tools. But from a data science standpoint, we created an open source project called Apache Arrow. Actually, this is why we're in Stealth still. And we took Dremio's internal memory format and we open sourced it. And the idea was, selfishly, if we could get our own internal memory format to become broadly adopted in the industry, not just in Dremio, but in many other, other projects, that would have a lot of benefits to us as something that's integrating with many different things. And that was wildly successful. We uh, partnered with the Python community, with Wes McKinney, who's the creator of Pandas. And... Fast forward three years later and, and a lot of engineering work that went on, and not just in Dremio, but many other individuals and, and companies as well. It, this is now downloaded like 4 million times a month. It's the foundation for things like Python, R, and so forth. So now that that's happened, we've just created this, this open source project called AeroFlight. And the idea there is to create a very, very high performance way for two systems that use Aero to interact between them. And so if you think about... Traditionally, data is transferred through things like JDBC and ODBC, which were created in the 1990s. And that's fine if you're pulling data for a bar chart, you know, BI tool, because maybe there's 10 bars and so it's not much data. But if you're a data scientist populating a data frame, we're talking millions of records. And that has to be much, much faster than what things like JDBC and ODBC can provide, where records are serialized and deserialized one record at a time and over a single thread. What we've done with AeroFlight is we've made it so that data can be sent without any serialization or deserialization. And also, it can be parallelized across multiple threads and also multiple servers. And so the result of that is hundreds of times faster performance in terms of uh, data transfer and interaction between client and, and server in these uh, data infrastructure use cases. Definitely. And what do you mean about that the data can be sent with and without serialization and deserialization? Well, if you think about, so Dremio's internal memory format is Apache Arrow. So when our SQL execution engine, you know, if it's running on 10 instances on, on Amazon or it's running on, on 100 or 1,000, the format in which we, we keep data in memory is this technology called Arrow. Because Python, for just as an example, for a data scientist, Python is now using Arrow as well for like uh, pandas. That means that we can actually send these Arrow formatted buffers of memory directly from Dremio in parallel to that user of pandas on their laptop or using a Jupyter notebook or maybe using Spark. We can send that in parallel without having to rewrite and copy the memory into another set of formats and send over the wire and then kind of fetch one record at a time through like a JDBC interface on the laptop. Yeah, that makes sense. That's phenomenal. And the other one I wanted to ask you about is the data masking capabilities. Obviously, also a, a huge issue as we have more data consumers throughout an organization, you need to be able to control the amount of details that they see, be able to mask PII information. How does that work in Dreaming? 
Yeah, so this goes back to that semantic layer that, that we have in, in the product, right? So semantic layer at a high level is basically an abstraction layer, right? It creates an abstraction between the users, who are the consumers of data, and the actual physical data sets. So these are the directories of Parquet files on S3 or something like that. And because you have this abstraction layer, that now allows you to apply various transformations in that abstraction layer, right? So without having to rewrite all the data and potentially rewrite it differently for different groups of users, you can actually define that in the semantic layer so that when one user is accessing the data, the credit card numbers are masked. Maybe another user doesn't even see any credit cards. And then a third user, because of the nature of their work, they, they are allowed to see that, right? So all of that happens at the semantic layer. And we allow you to define policies that are both column level and row level and, and can include masking. So replacing, keeping the last four digits, or and you can actually use any function that you want, any SQL function or set of functions to define the masking rule. That makes sense. Yeah. And how does that, doing that on the fly, how does that affect the performance? Yeah, this is where some of the technology we've created around data reflections comes into play, right? So an abstraction layer naturally, right, creates transformations, right, that are kind of on the fly. But because we have this caching and indexing layer that's part of the technology, we can then take that and automatically materialize various different elements of the data. So the net result is, is pretty complex in terms of how it works, but the net result of that is that we can actually get hundreds of times the performance that you could get by, say, just running a SQL engine like Presto or Hive or something like that. Yeah, that's great. How has the journey of being a co-founder and getting a company to this level, how has that journey been for you personally? I ask because when I had my company in the past, I always felt that the potential and the performance of the company was dictated by how good my co-founder and I were. As in, like we were almost like the limiting factor in the growth of the company. And the more sort of we worked on ourselves, the better the company did. And we were the limit of it. Have you found a similar journey and how has it been for you? Yeah, it's been a rewarding experience. It's never easy because you're always kind of pushing the envelope. You're always taking the company to the next level, right? And the thing that's ahead of you always seems like the hardest thing, right? So when you're, yeah. before you've raised your Series A, well, it's like, well, that's hard. How am I going to raise money? Before you hire your first sales <laughs> rep, it's like, well, how am I going to find sales reps, right? So I think you're always facing kind of the next set of challenges. For me personally, because I had already gone through this, not as a founder, or, but uh, as a VP of product and part of an executive team of a company that went from four people to many hundreds and thousands of customers, a lot of that experience was familiar. And so I could draw on that and, and also draw on my, my own personal networks as well. Yeah, it's been extremely satisfying, especially seeing kind of the success that our customers are having with the technology, right? That's There's nothing more that really drives you more than that, right? Because at the end of the day, that's, that's kind of why you're doing this. So. When we're making it possible for very large and kind of household name companies such as, uh, you know, Royal Caribbean Cruise Lines to really start tapping to the data about their, their passengers and their customers and everything, all their interaction points with you know, taking a cruise and, and before and after that cruise. When we're the technology that is enabling a company like that to become data driven, that's very satisfying. We work with a variety of companies across every spectrum you can imagine from the world's largest maker of alcohol to the German train company to some of the largest tech companies in the valley. I think to me, that's the biggest reward from this. There's a lot of challenges along the way that we've had to overcome. I think one of the maybe less so now that we are more proven and, and have dozens of very large uh, customers. But when you're getting started, those first few customers are basically taking a big risk and kind of betting on you. They're putting this into their environment and in a mission critical deployment. You really have to do a lot to, to make them feel comfortable that you're here to stay and that you're going to make sure that this works well for them. 
Yeah, exactly. I think you've done it so well in the sense that I often tell people to try and get the experience of if they want to be an entrepreneur, I usually tell them to try and get the experience while working for somebody else, if that makes sense. And obviously, in your case, was that your case that happened? Was that by design or by chance? I'd say more by chance. Yeah, it's hard to plan these things. I think there's a, a big part of it, though, is it's either in your DNA or it's not in your DNA, right? I think the same thing is true for people that we hire, right? It's not when we interview people, we try to assess and, and actually ask them, you know, if this is, uh, if they want to be part of this kind of startup journey, right? Because mm. it's, uh, you're going to work longer hours and you're going to work harder and you're going to have to be more dedicated to the company than you would if you were working at, say, uh, a larger company at Microsoft or Oracle or Google or something like that, because the company depends on you and the customers depend on you. Completely. What type of challenges are you facing at the moment? What type of things are occupying your mind these days? Well, I think we're going through a lot of growth right now. In the last year, we've opened up another office in actually in Hyderabad in India. That's played out really well for us. We've been able to hire uh, top talent there, a lot of folks that have built databases for companies like Amazon and, and Microsoft and, and others, right? So uh, tapping into another talent pool has been extremely valuable, but we're really focused on growing internationally as well. And that helps us also with the 24 by 7 support for all our customers, regardless of whether it's a large bank in Singapore or a company, a tech company in the Bay Area. We have to give them all 24-7 support because that's what they need. So having multiple locations helps, but it's also a challenge, right? Because employees are no longer in one place and you have to make sure that ownership is more clearly defined and that you're, as a company culture, you're being very inclusive of everybody in the company. And so we've taken a lot of steps to make that the case through kind of monthly all-hands meetings with the employees and things of that nature, you know, weekly emails of what's going on in the company. But that's something that we have to keep doing and keep doing in every department of the company, right? Now that we're uh, getting past that 100 employee mark, communication becomes really important. So that's something that we're very focused on. That's really good. And if you can give us a sense of how the company is structured, so what are the, I guess, your direct reports, their main functions, obviously as much as you can give us, but if you can give us a sense on that side? I think it's a very typical kind of structure, right? So we have an engineering team that's you know, VP of engineering that runs that organization that includes development and testing and those kinds of things. We have a sales team, and so they're responsible for selling to, to new accounts. They're also responsible for what we call field engineering. So engineers that work with our customers to help them architect their solutions, to help them evaluate our product. We do that before we sell, but more importantly, after they become customers, we want them to be mm -hmm. successful. So that's a big focus for us is we focus on actually a lot more after you've become a customer because we want you to grow. We want you to be successful with the product because we know that, that will drive expansions and that will also drive kind of word of mouth. And so within that team, we have a customer success organization as well as a professional services organization. And then we also have a marketing organization. There's a few other pieces. We actually have product management and uh, business development. It's kind of more on the partnership side. We do a lot of work with companies like Microsoft and Tableau and Amazon on the BD side of things. But that makes sense. And earlier you were saying about how building a direct-to-consumer product in the mid-2000s, that that helped you learn a lot of the internet marketing that now is moving into the B2B space. Mm -hmm. How have you seen that come in to your company's development or strategy? And what do you see as the split between having a sales force that goes direct to customers versus, I guess, an online strategy and acquisition? I think you have to have both. The reality is that you're, especially with very, very large organizations that we sell to, a number of the Fortune 10 companies are, are customers of ours now. Those organizations, you have to give them more attention 
they have a lot of unique requirements, whether it's scale or integration, other things. So having a sales team is really important for that. But there's a, a long tail of potential customers as well and companies that want to use this. Tech companies and companies in, actually in countries that, you know, today we did our, there's a company in Indonesia that became a customer today. We don't have any sales team there, but uh, the fact that they were able to leverage our online resources, whether it's our uh, videos and demos and documentation, and the fact that we have free version of the product, uh, an open source version that you can go and start using on your own on Azure or on AWS, all of those things, those investments uh, help us attract uh, a larger pool of customers, uh, companies that, that have become aware of Dremio and want to use it. And sometimes have already evaluated it before they even talk to us about actually becoming customers. I think that's really important. And then, and then you have the whole aspect of how do companies, how do people actually learn and discover things today, right? And yeah. that you look at things like social media, for example. A lot of people use LinkedIn and Facebook and Twitter to consume information, and that's how they discover new technologies. And so, making sure we have a good presence on those platforms and that we're sharing valuable information about Dremio, about other things that makes people want to engage. That's really important on the marketing side. And one of the metrics we look at, for example, when we post things on LinkedIn is what is the engagement level? We actually, we can compare ourselves to other companies. And so we have a benchmark of say 50 companies that we compare our engagement, uh, the engagement on our posts with them. And we make sure that we're consistently in kind of the top three uh, out of that peer group of, of about 50 in terms of the engagement level. So those are the types of things that are important. And I think that's a lot of that has come from that consumer world, right? Where you're kind of going, making yourself visible to individuals and not just uh, cold calling a CIO who's yeah. going to perhaps make a top-down decision, right? A lot of times now it's the folks that are doing the work, the data scientists, data engineers, they get to make the decisions. And so you want to make it really easy for them to consume the software the way that they consume software or, or services. Definitely. What do you see as the main difference in the company between when it was 15 to 20 people to the 100 people or so that it is now? We're way more organized. We have way more structure and we have way more um, horsepower and capacity to, capacity to do things, right? There's only so much you can do with 15 people. I think you have to get to that critical mass in order to be able to effectively respond to customer needs and, and have a strong roadmap and all those things. And you just have to have some critical mass in order to get there. So that's one thing is just the amount of things we can do. And with the size of the company comes the need to make sure that there are clear kind of roles and responsibilities. And we're not just uh, kind of thrashing and doing whatever seems important that day, right? So that's yeah. the other thing, putting together processes and more organization in the company. No, that's great. I definitely want to ask you because I know a lot of the listeners aspire to start their own company or are in the process of building their own company. So obviously hearing your story and everything that you've done so far is going to be fascinating and so inspirational to them. So that's fantastic. And tell me what's next for you guys? What's coming up in the future? It can be the roadmap or it can be aspirations as a company. We have a big release coming up in September. So we're, uh, generally we call that 4.0, but, uh, I'm very focused on AWS and Azure. You know, we're going to take another kind of 10x performance improvement on what we already have and through a number of unique innovations. So that's a big emphasis for us. And we're working on kind of preparing for that announcement right now. That's fantastic. And in terms of from a company perspective, you said you're striving for more international expansion. Is that around offices or customers? And, and what type of, I guess, company ambitions do you have beyond that? Yeah, we're actually adding, uh, we're growing our team in Europe right now. So we have, we have a team in Europe that uh, has been very successful. A lot of, we have a lot of customers there in different clusters, but I'd say around kind of the UK, that's kind of one cluster in the German markets, another big cluster, but there's a 
We have customers all over the place, everything from uh, Hungary to um, Singapore to yeah, London, let's say. And so we look at where we see the most opportunities and, and we're constantly adding more members of the team in, in those locations. So that's something we're aggressively doing right now. Great. That's fantastic, mate. Thank you. So I'd like to change tact and go to some questions that I've accumulated from the listeners over time. The first one is, what are you most proud of that you've done in your career? It's hard not to say Dremio, um, because you know, this is one that we took from PowerPoint to 100 people and the, or you know over that and thousands of companies that use it. So it's been a great journey. And that's probably the thing that I'm most proud of. Definitely. Definitely, man. A possibly a tough question, maybe maybe not. Have you had a failure in your past that at least you perceived as a failure at the time, but that then led you to greater success or that you could see that the lessons from that failure actually helped you down the road to go into greater success? Uh, there's no shortage of failures I've had and things that uh, did not go anywhere, right? Even things that we thought would be super important in terms of the product ended up not being important and, and vice versa. Things that we did not see initially just based on our intuition as like the killer features and then became really important to customers and, and we ended up investing more in that. So that happens all the time where we're, you have your hypothesis and you're kind of learning and getting better based on that. I think one of the things I learned from my experience at MapR was the importance of ease of use and uh, ease of adoption. I don't think we made it easy enough for companies to adopt Hadoop, both MapR and as well as our competitors at the time, Cloudera and Hortonworks. It was too hard to get value out of it. And ultimately, that's as important as you know, speeds and feeds. And so when we started Jamio, the, like I think the first hire that we made was user experience. We, that's where we started. We said, let's make something that's super easy to use, right? And MapR, six years into it, just about when I left, or five and a half years into it, we hadn't even hired a UX person. I think that was a big uh, an example of a learning. Definitely. A really important one that has obviously helped you shape Dremio. That's fantastic. What advice would you have for people in the data space that want to make the jump into entrepreneurship? Or maybe advice that you would give yourself if you were, if you were yeah, starting I, I, Dremio now? I think taking the plunge, right? Like if, it's something yeah. you're passionate, if you're something you're passionate about, I think giving it a try, right? It's uh, What was it that I think it was... Uh, Jeff Bezos's metric was like the regret factor. Like, what are you going to minimizing your regret later? And I think you're not going to regret trying. Even if it doesn't succeed, you'll definitely regret not trying. Right. And so I think that's, uh, I totally believe in that. And I think the only way to actually do it is to try. And I think having a really good idea that where there's a need in the market, that's a really important thing. People sometimes say the idea is not important, but I actually think it's very important because you're not focused on a market or on a product that on a large market or a need for a need that exists in that market, then it's going to be very hard to build a team around that and it's going to be very hard to execute. So I think you have to start there with something that has a need and, and make sure that you verify that with potential customers, at least in the B2B space. In the consumer business, it's a little bit different, right? It's hard to predict sometimes why that game became successful and that other game didn't. Um, mm. There's a lot of other aspects that make things successful. But when you're selling to companies, I think it's about solving a, an acute need that they have or an acute problem they have. Did you find that you had to take many twists and turns on the way to finding your product market fit? Not so much a Dremio. Yes, we had to, like I said, prioritize and deprioritize things mm. um, that maybe when we started, we thought would be more important. But I think by and large, we're kind of, we've been moving in the same direction the whole time, which is good. But yeah, like for example, the opportunity around the cloud data lake is something that I don't think we recognized 
yeah, when we started four years ago, that that would be so significant. And really, it took maybe a few years for companies, especially the enterprises, to start adopting public cloud. And so then, you know, it, was, it became more clear that, yeah, that was going to be a huge market opportunity. And you see that now a lot of companies are, other software companies are saying, yeah, we can help you build your cloud data lake, you know, and companies that actually didn't design their product to do that, right? Things like MongoDB and Snowflake and, and others. So I think we're in a great spot with having designed the product to do that and, and that now becoming a big opportunity and need in the market. Definitely. No, that's really good. And, and I guess the stability in the direction shows the amount of industry and market knowledge that you had coming into the sure. role and creating the company. So that's phenomenal. What do you see as the future challenges in the data space? That can be data science, data engineering. What do you see as some of the upcoming challenges? Well, I think there's uh, the biggest challenge, I think, is as an industry, we have to simplify things. Companies want to be data-driven, and every company wants to be data-driven now. And I think, by and large, every company realizes that data, their own proprietary data, is their unique competitive advantage. There's been articles about this that I've read about kind of the, the shift from the industrial era to now the, the kind of the knowledge era where it's not the physical plants and material that you have, it's the data and the IP. But in order to capitalize on that data, you either are going to hire thousands of data engineers into your company and you're going to have a data engineer for every business analyst. And then for the 99.9% of companies that can't do that, there have to be better technologies than the ones we used 10 or 15 years ago. And I think that's something that the industry has struggled to deliver, right? Like at the end of the day, many companies are still creating, sure, they're doing it in the cloud, but they're creating data warehouses all over again, right? Despite the frustration from the last era of data warehouses and everybody wanted to get off of those. And you know, they're still going through all this complexity, which means that most employees can't take advantage of data. And so I think as an industry, that's something we're focused on, but I, I think a lot of other companies are going to be focused on how do you make it so that every employee in the company can truly be data-driven in their job. And increasingly, people are tech-savvy. The new generation of employees has grown up with, with iPhones. They don't need somebody to put a report on their desk. They want access to the data. They can write some SQL queries and connect the BI tool. But they want access to the data and they want it to be extremely fast. Very true. That's awesome. Man, this has been excellent. I only have one last question for you. And that is, what's a, a piece of advice that you would like to leave the listeners with? A piece of advice? Yeah, I think I might give my advice earlier, which is uh, go do what you're passionate about. I think that's the most important thing. A lot of people get caught up in doing something that they're not enjoying or doing something that's not ambitious. And I think life's too short. Take some risks and go big. That is awesome. And that's interesting about saying when people are doing something that's not too ambitious and that they should go big. That's awesome, man. That's a fantastic note to end on. Tomer, thank you so much for your time. Thanks so much for sharing your story, your perspectives, your learnings. Yeah, it is so inspirational for the audience to hear about the way that you think and everything that you've done, both in your company and before that. It's amazing. Thank you so much for sharing it. Yeah, thanks for having me on the show. Really appreciate it. I wanted to tell you about the RMIT Online Masters of Data Science Strategy and Leadership. I was one of the industry advisors for this program. It's an online master's program and it covers both data science strategy and leadership and it has also a technical component. Highly, highly recommend it for people wanting to get ahead. With the program, you can gain this advanced strategic leadership and data science capabilities required to influence executive leadership teams and deliver organization-wide solutions. For more information, visit online.rmit.edu. That brings this episode to conclusion. Thank you so much for listening. Please find us on datafuturology.com or on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, or Instagram as Data Futurology. 
also go to datafuturology.com forward slash podcast to find the show notes for this and any other episodes. If you like this episode, it would mean a lot to us if you could leave us a review wherever you listen to our podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode and that it was helpful and valuable for you. Thanks again and see you next time.